0: We can all call up that important date in history when the astronauts of Apollo 11 landed on the surface of the moon, right? Contact right? It was July 20th, 1969. Neil Armstrong took those famous first steps.
1: Tranquility Base
0: here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. The last steps were just a few years later.
1: The last time a human set foot on the moon was 1972. Uh, It was the last of the Apollo missions. And, you know, at the time, there was great hope for the space program.
0: Christian Davenport is a reporter for The Washington Post, covering NASA and space. He reminds us that sending humans to the moon was a huge national goal and pledge of President Kennedy's. It took effort and resources, and we did it. And we beat the Soviet Union there. It was a Cold War space race, after all. Then we sent astronauts to the moon again and again, five more times after Neil Armstrong landed there. Americans got used to it.
1: Polling at the time showed that it just didn't capture the American public's attention anymore. It's like, all right, you know, you've sent up one crew, then another, then another. And they didn't sort of see the value in it. And there were, you know, of course, a lot of things going on at home with the war in Vietnam and civil unrest. And the space program, as a result, sort of, you know, in terms of human exploration, um, retracted its ambitions. So we haven't had humans go back ever since.
0: In the past year or so, it seems like a new race to the moon has been gearing up. Would you characterize it that way?
1: Yeah, 100%. And what's attracting all of these countries and all of these companies, because it's not just national space programs anymore, is a resource on the moon that we were not aware of was even there in the 1960s and 70s. That resource
0: is water in the form of ice on the moon's south pole, discovered decades later around 2009. So now there's renewed interest in lunar missions, and not just from the U.S. How many countries right now currently have
1: ongoing missions to the moon? Russia, China, India, Japan, the United States. We're looking at like, you know, five or six, something like that. There's so many, it takes a minute to count them all.
0: Do all of these countries racing to the moon or just like jockeying to get there, does that feel retro to you?
1: Yeah. I mean, it it is sort of a a reprise of of the Cold War, space race to the moon-ish.
0: Today on the show, the space race back to the moon has taken off. I'm Yasmin Khan. You're listening to a special Sunday edition of What Next? I'm your host, in for Mary Harris. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day.
1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
0: So the last time travel to the moon was a major global focus was back during the Cold War when the U.S. and the Soviet Union obviously were in this competition to land a man on the moon. The U.S., of course, got there first. Neil Armstrong took those famous first steps. There were several U.S. missions in subsequent years. And then our attention turned away from the moon. Why is that?
1: Well, I I think NASA, even though they had just pulled off this moon mission, you know, think of what was happening in the country at the time, right? The last moon mission is 1972. You have the war in Vietnam still continuing. You have the civil rights movement. Um, Nixon uh, is in office and facing controversy with Watergate. This had been Kennedy's pledge, not his. The interest just began to wane, and instead, eventually, we turned our attention to low Earth orbit around the moon and the programs that led to the development of the space shuttle and the International Space Station. Um, And so that's sort of where we've been, and we haven't been able to get back to the moon since. Yeah. In the U.S.,
0: the moon didn't really become a major goal again until the Trump administration, right? Right. What was the Trump administration's directive to NASA?
1: Yeah, well, so actually, it was the goal of, say, the George W. Bush administration. Hmm. But it, they just didn't have the momentum. They didn't have the funding. They didn't have the, the interest. And it just was not really a serious program. And then President Obama comes in and says, you know, we're, we've already been to the moon. He literally said, we've been there, done that. We should go to an asteroid. We should go to Mars. And then the Trump administration comes in and says and refocuses NASA to go to the moon.
0: It seems awfully significant then that President Biden comes into office and he maintains support for this Trump era program. Yeah. He wants to continue those same goals, right?
1: Right. So think of like what the Biden administration did when they came in. I mean, they just laid waste to so many of Trump's programs and policies, but they kept two notable ones, and that's the, the Trump era moon program, which is called Artemis. It uh, was a twin sister of Apollo and the Space Force. And that really is significant. In fact, that's the first time you've had subsequent presidential administrations keep a deep space human exploration program uh, since the Apollo era. And to think that it was done from a Republican to a Democrat and these really polarized political times. I mean, that is extraordinary. Right.
0: It was really exciting back in April when NASA named the Artemis
1: crew. Yeah, this is going to be the crew that's going to fly around the moon. You know, the astronaut corps of today is not like the astronaut corps of the Apollo era. It's not just white men and crew cuts and military fighter jet pilots. We're going to have the first woman walk on the moon. We're going to have the first person uh, of color walk on the moon was a Biden edition. And I think that resonated you know with with Congress and that was I think done by design to, to keep support for the program going. And the idea though is that you know we're not going to do an Apollo program. We're not going to just plant our flag, walk around for a couple of days, grab some rocks and come home. We are gonna build up a more permanent presence, an enduring presence on and around the moon. What's helping to drive political will for the
0: moon program is the existence of water on the moon's south pole in the form of ice. So this race isn't just about returning to the moon, it's about getting to the south pole into those reserves of ice. Christian says accessing them could jumpstart a whole new era of space exploration.
1: The South Pole is this huge focus now, not just for the United States, but you know, India just landed a spacecraft there. Russia tried, but it crashed. China wants to go there. It's because of this discovery that there is water in the form of ice in these permanently shadowed craters where it can be very, very dark, very, very cold. And that water is just there, frozen. And we know this. Uh, But we don't yet have the real ground truth. And that's what India wants to begin to investigate with its mission. And it's what the United States also wants to investigate. Where exactly is this water? How deep is it? How accessible? How much is there? Um, If we were going to mine it, what sort of uh, equipment would we need to get it? all these questions are yet to be answered. So there's a lot of research and development that's yet to be done. Um, But once we can get that water, then that really could be the stepping stones to longer term human settlements on the moon. And that's really the goal of a lot of these uh, countries.
0: Yeah. Break that down for me. How would accessing water make that possible?
1: So, I mean, water obviously is vital for human life. I mean, if you can drink it, if you take its component parts, the hydrogen and oxygen, it just turns out that's rocket fuel, right? (laughs) That's exactly what a lot of these rockets fly on. And you would have to be able then on the moon, get the water, access it, uh, separate it, uh, refine it so that it can be used as as a rocket propellant, the hydrogen as a fuel and the uh, oxygen as the, the oxidizer, um, but once you do that, then you can think of the moon as a gas station in space. You don't have to carry all of that fuel with you. And the moon has a reduced gravity, so you may not need as much um, fuel. And that allows you to get to other destinations like, like Mars. So I think that's why it's sort of seen as sort of this really critical component on the moon.
0: I want to still get a handle on like the landscape of who's involved here. So among the countries we've talked about, Who are the key players in this present-day space race?
1: Yeah, and the key players, the key countries really are the United States and China. Those are the two biggest superpowers when it comes to space. It, It used to really just be the United States, but China in recent years has made tremendous progress. Um, you know, they landed a spacecraft, uh, in 2019 on the far side of the moon, which had never been done before. Um, they have now put a Rover on Mars. They have their own space station. In addition to all of that, they have uh, big ambitions when it comes to the moon. And like the United States wants to go to the South pole, uh, of the moon, uh, unlike the United States, you know, their civilian space agency and their defense agencies, there's no real big line between the two. They don't have to worry about, you know, Republicans and Democrats and the messy business of democracy uh, fighting over what national priorities should be and how much money to spend on all of these things. And they've slowly and steadily been building a really robust civilian space program as one as a military one as well. They're, they have become enormously capable.
0: And of course, India just successfully achieved a moon landing, unmanned moon landing. Russia's most recent landing attempt did not succeed. But what does that say about where things stand?
1: Yeah. So clearly India's landing on the moon shows that they are a serious player in space. But I think with the lunar landing, they uh, probably occupy the third spot. If it's the United States then China, and now India as the biggest uh, national power in space. And they may displace uh, Russia, which their space program has really withered uh, for a long time since the end of the Soviet era. Yes, they still launch um, astronauts to the International Space Station. They are a partner there, um, but they've had you know, a, a series of problems and, and people think that their uh, space program is not as robust as it, as it once was.
0: I want to just actually think back to the Cold War again for for a second because, I mean, the race to the moon feels reminiscent in a lot of ways to the original space race. I'm wondering if you would say so or if this is just a sort of lazy comparison.
1: No, I think think today's race to the moon is reminiscent of the Cold War space race to the moon in some ways, Uh, right? Big power competition. Um, But what makes it different this time is well, a lot of things. One is it's not just the U.S. and China, right? The United States is partnering with all these other countries to go back to the moon and to go um, not just to the surface of the moon but to a specific location, the South Pole, and not just to get there and plant a flag but to uh, set up an enduring presence. They also have uh, a bigger commercial space sector that, the, that NASA relies on that wasn't around during Apollo, um, there's Elon Musk's SpaceX. There's Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin. Um, those two companies, I, I highlight them because they have the contracts from NASA worth billions of dollars to build the spacecraft that would actually land the astronauts on the lunar surface and then take them off the lunar surface. Um, right? So that's actually, it's done in partnership with NASA, but this is something that the commercial sector is doing. right? So you remember that famous moment 1969, the Eagle has landed. Uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin are on the moon. The next time, uh, the way things are set up now, that would be SpaceX's Starship has landed, right? And, and we're putting that capability and that responsibility in the hands of the private sector.
0: Huh, right. So these private companies, SpaceX and Blue Origin, they've gotten lots of attention in the last couple of years, but you're saying that they're actually really key to achieving NASA's goals.
1: Vital, yes, absolutely. I mean, and this is a paradigm shift for NASA that has been going on for the last 15 years or so.
0: After the break, with a crowded race and resources at stake, who's regulating what countries can do if they actually make it to the moon? And is this project a worthwhile way to spend taxpayer dollars?
2: Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? The potential to mine ice on the moon raises a lot of questions in ethical gray areas, like who owns the moon's resources and what can they do with them? I asked Christian what laws are in place to ensure things don't get out of hand.
1: Very few. Um, I mean, the Outer Space Treaty says that no nation can, you know, like, claim the sovereignty on the moon, that you can't use nuclear weapons in space. Um, Interestingly, the United States Congress in in 2015, I believed, um, passed a law uh, that was signed by President Obama that said that if any commercial companies from the United States mined a celestial body, uh, an asteroid, or took water on the moon, that those companies could lay claim to those resources um, that's yet to be tested you know, in any sort of international tribune. I mean, there are working groups within the United Nations that are talking about um, these issues who would have rights to resources on celestial bodies. You're dealing with all kinds of different uh, countries and, you know, it's been slow going to try to create norms of behavior on the moon.
0: There have been a few piecemeal attempts to create rules here. Back in 2020, NASA and the U.S. Department of State out a voluntary set of guidelines that countries can sign on to, called the Artemis
1: Accords. And so far, uh, NASA and the U.S. have been able to have nearly 30 countries sign up um, and be signatories. And if you're a signatory, you can then partner with NASA in the Artemis program. But you have to agree to certain standards, like, for example, be open about where you're going on the moon, um, what you're going to be doing there, if you make a scientific discovery, you have to share that, you know, with the world, with other partners. You have to be open and transparent about it. But it's, it's an attempt to, you know, create some, you know, laws and rules in what's really the Wild West, where it, there aren't a whole lot of rules that govern behavior on the moon.
0: Have Russia, China and India signed the Artemis Accords?
1: So China and Russia have not. India has. Uh, and they did that uh, just in June, so shortly before uh, their landing on the moon. And so um, they are a partner then um, of the United States. I interviewed uh, Bill Nelson, the NASA administrator, and asked him you know, straight up, like, hey, India got to the South Pole of the moon before the United States. Is that a concern for you? And I think it probably is, I mean, if we're being honest, but he he, he said, no, no, you know, we see them as a partner and we are, we're we're going to congratulate them. Um, and they have the assurance that they did sign the Artemis Accords. Um, and that will give them, you know, uh, I guess a level of comfort that they might not have uh, were China to get there first.
0: With so little regulation, what are the major concerns about what could happen on the
1: moon in the next few years or decades? I think they're mostly worried now about claims of of territory, saying this is where we are, it's ours effectively, and you have to stay out. So, like, for example, that China would lay claim to vast swaths of water ice on the moon and claim it uh, as their own. And while the, the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 says no nation can claim sovereignty over any celestial body, maybe China says we're, we're taking the water and you get out and not be transparent about what they're doing or where they are, which also could really create some safety issues, right? Because you want to know, you want to have situational awareness and know what, where people are and what they're doing so that you don't have accidents.
0: NASA is obviously now focused on moon exploration. We're spending billions on the program. But space isn't something that most average. US. citizens think about or interact with on the day to day. And a lot of people are arguing that money should be better spent elsewhere on Earth. Um, and I'm wondering what you make of that argument. Is this the kind of spending that's justified?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think we need to have those debates. I mean, that's what a you know open democratic society does, that you know we've got some real problems here on Earth. And they see these money going to the moon, and they wonder, well, how does that benefit us? Um, we should be focused here. I think advocates for space exploration would say that you can do both, um, and that by going to space, uh, there are legitimate arguments to be made that it does benefit Earth. I mean, just if you one small example uh, on, your, on your smartphone, you see that little blue GPS dot that tells you where you are and where you're going. That comes from space. Um, that comes from a U.S. satellite. You know, there is a way to go to space and, and make it for the benefit of the of the Earth.
0: Do you think the American public can be captivated again by trips to the moon
1: the way that that it was? I, I think so. I, I, I think in a way, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. Right. Because, you know, we, we will have I think for a moment at least, this renewed interest in the astronaut corps, with you know the first woman on the moon and the first person of color. Um, I think companies like SpaceX have renewed interest and, and made space cooler again by you know launching as as often as they do and uh, landing rockets. And you know so there is this hope for a scientific future that I think will captivate more of the American public. But I think there will always be, and there should be, this tension between what is the balance between spending money and resources and time and energy on space versus all of the problems we have on Earth. And I think that's a good thing to discuss.
0: Christian, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, this was a lot of fun.
0: Christian Davenport covers NASA and space at the Washington Post. He's the author of the book, The Space Barons. That's the show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We're led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations at Slate. And I'm Yasmin Khan in for Mary Harris. Thanks for listening.